HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Salonia. Our next guest is making his debut on Cutting the Curd. Today, we have Trevor Wardemall. Some of you may know and follow Trevor under his Instagram moniker, Milk Trekker, where you can follow his inspiring adventures as a nomadic cheesemaker and herder. He is a writer and educator who has been involved with cheesemaking for 14 years and has spent two years traveling in remote areas of the world where he documented traditional dairying and cheesemaking practices. Trevor is also the 2022 recipient of the Daphne Zeppos Teaching Endowment Award and now teaches a mobile natural cheesemaking course called the Sour Milk School. Trevor, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hey, Joe. I'm really happy to be talking with you today, and it's been a goal of mine to get on to cutting the curd. So this is means a lot to me. Right. Uh, it means a lot for us to have you here. So really welcome. Um, so most obvious question, where are you right now? Because the last time I took a look at your Instagram, I think I saw a video or photo of you eating like a bowl of curds in Mongolia or something. Um, so where are you? So I'm in California right now um, on a farm where I'm going to be teaching a workshop starting on Friday. So since I returned to the U.S. in January, I've been teaching these five-day natural cheesemaking workshops under my new project, the Sour Milk School. So I'm on this small farm where they're milking some sheep and experimenting with cheeses and we'll be working with the milk here to do some natural starter cultures and teach people a range of cheeses that can be made in their own homes. So that is that the goal then to um, have a little more of a, uh, a, a tactile and connection, a tactile f- feeling and connection with uh, the, the, the natural elements so that someone who's into maybe cheesemaking as a uh, hobby, hobbyist, they can join your milk, join your sour milk school, get a little more serious about it. Um, 
what would you say your typical perfect student would be for, for, for a project like this? Yeah, it's definitely ideal when people come with some cheese making experience. Um, but I have to kind of plan for people not knowing very much. And, and a lot of people haven't done this before. So I am talking about like milk microbes and ways of fermenting milk that don't require the addition of commercial starter cultures. Um, and we talk a lot about other natural materials that can be used, such as wood. And I use like some woven willow baskets to shape cheese. Um, so a lot of the people who come are kind of like homestead or like small family farm level, um, milking a few animals or a small herd for their own home consumption. And that's what I gear the workshop towards um, is people who are doing this non-commercially and mm -hmm. are wanting to just kind of see what's possible with their milk. And the, the thing that people run into is that all of the like educational material out there, most of the books are geared towards following this paradigm that commercial cheesemakers are required to follow um, with kind of strict sanitation and um, using a lot of products that you have to buy. So I'm kind of trying to teach people to as much as possible, cultivate the microbes themselves from their own raw milk. And so we're looking at the milk handling and trying to work with the freshest milk possible with its microbial ecology still intact as the basis for safe and effective fermentation. Wow. And it's this, if this would seem like the most old fashioned way to make cheese before, uh, you know, having lab, lab grown microbiology for consistent reasons. So would you say that this is mirroring almost like, uh, like sourdough, a sourdough kind of has this same concept where you're going to grow your own wild yeast molds in your home. Is that rare? I mean, and some cheesemakers do this step, but they might also add in more of their other lab grown microbes. And in different doses, but is that in the spirit of hey, this for some who aren't that familiar with cheese making, is it like sourdough making versus yeasting your dough? Yeah, that is the equivalent, and that's the analogy that I quite often use since a lot of people are familiar with sourdough now. Um, mm -hmm. And so I also compare like the flavor potential with sourdough, where you have, in my opinion, the potential for a much deeper range of flavors and more nuance when you work with a sourdough starter compared to commercial yeast. Um, so that is the idea when you're cultivating these starters is that you're like letting your raw milk ferment and it might take three or four days to sour and thicken. And then you take a small amount of that and add it back to fresh milk. And you mm -hmm. do this multiple rounds until you build up a strong population of lactic acid bacteria, which mm -hmm. are thriving in the in acidic environment that they create. So you're kind of like boosting one segment of the um, population that is generally in raw milk and making it stronger to the point that you can effectively ferment cheese. And I've been really surprised how well these starters can work. They, most people, when they start using them, actually 
go too far with it and they end up with a really fast fermentation, um, sometimes too fast. And then you have to like throttle it back. So mm. I think this method can not only be as consistent as commercial starter cultures, I think it can actually be more consistent, um, especially yeah. when you're making cheese in really small batches where it's hard to properly dose um, with commercial starter cultures. And it really is a different fermentation because you're adding a live, already acidified um, amount of milk rather than adding a kind of um, hibernating freeze-dried starter culture that takes a while to wake back up. So it, you get a really a different acidity curve. And almost immediately after a few days, you can notice these really signature flavors that I associate now with naturally fermented cheeses um, mm. that I've, ex I've experienced around the world, this similar flavor profile that I've never really seen um, emerge from commercial starter cultures. Yeah, do you say and and from the more rural areas of uh, of the world, you're gonna um, almost know there's a flavor uh, like like sometimes I when I'll taste uh, cheeses, it's you sometimes know automatically that this this cheese might not have been from uh, lab grown cultures or it might not have been from uh, maybe uh, uh, cheesemakers that are using the the uh, the prepared uh, bacterias they taste a little more wild or a little more authentic and natural sometimes you even can guess that they're not from america just by the nature of you know maybe the, the decades or hundreds of years of tradition that might have been supporting the very act of doing it um and uh i'm gonna guess that and what i'm hearing you saying that this can lead to more consistency so you're able to not only identify this common denominator you're, you're predicting that this could be uh, where if this practice more, maybe you, you can come up with more, a more consistent, uh, cheese is what you're saying. Is that what, is that what I'm, uh, hearing? Yeah, I believe so. I believe the, the way that the fermentation proceeds is very different, um, from the use of commercial starter cultures. And once you get your dosing right and your maintenance of the starter culture down, um, I think it is, it, it can be very reliable, um, but a lot of it also rests on working with milk that has either never been refrigerated or has only been held cold for a short period of time. I think mm -hmm. that a lot of the reason why people need to like bombard their cheese with heavy doses of commercial starter cultures is because of the damage that's done to the microbial ecology by storing milk cold. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that in some of the French cheeses, this seems to be an idea that's becoming very popular in France and um, people that study cheese making in France or work with French consultants, they'll actually store the milk not at normal refrigeration temperature in the mid-30s, but up in the low 50s, like 52 degrees seems to be a really mm -hmm. common number. Um, and when you do that, you don't damage the microbial ecology in the same way. You're kind of at the very low end of mesophilic bacteria without getting into the temperatures that cultivate psychrotrophic uh, bacteria. So it's, it's yeah. a combination of the starter cultures and the milk treatment. Um, and I'm trying to kind of take the idea of cheese making all the way back to the animals and looking at the health of the milk as starting from what the animals are eating, and more importantly, where they're sleeping and what the factors are that are impacting the 
uh, health of the microbial, microbial ecology on their teats, which really is the basis of the microbes in the milk, as far as I can tell. It's the main factor, is what's going on on the teats, what products are being used to clean, and... Mm. And I think the size and the housing conditions of the animals is a crucial factor in this. Wow. Wow, there's so many things you're, you're unpacking here. And, and even this idea of 52 degrees to not go below, it, it's almost like a reverse pasteurization kind of rule, if it's proven to be true in a way, I guess, huh? Because too cold can damage, just like too hot can damage, huh? Is uh, yeah, what you're yeah. kind of getting at here. Definitely. And all these temperatures matter. And another thing that I'm trying to encourage is to move past this dichotomy between raw and pasteurized and look at the full spectrum of mm. how temperatures affect the microbes that are in milk um, and trying to kind of like transcend that um, that argument that really like pits people on one side or the other. And I think both sides of that argument can be pretty misguided and um, fundamentalist in their approach to this stuff. And I want to look at it scientifically and um, as a, as a spectrum of different temperatures affecting milk in different ways. Yeah. And I guess, um, I mean, learning and discovering that through the lens of what's legal or what's going to be used for, for personal consumption will, will prove to be a very uh, a interesting and ongoing uh, discussion, I'm sure, as we head into ACS. Um, maybe this topic will be, be brought up uh, uh, in a different level, just even that 52 degree uh, notion there. That's pretty fascinating. Um, I, I have a, I, I, if, if it's okay, if we could just put a, a topper on that, the, the topic of your of your class in Sourdale, because it just, it just, just, the, what you just discussed has uh, many uh, tendrils going into some of my other topics I want to discuss with you. But one one of the most burning questions of a uh, few people I mentioned uh, that have uh, know that I'm going to be talking with you, they want to know how is it that you even start? How did you even start uh, be, with the idea that you're going to be a nomadic cheese maker? And, and how did you how, how did you think about how you're going to get around to all these places? Yeah, it's been a long process and I've I've been traveling since before I was a cheesemaker so I've kind of gotten used to the lifestyle of of frequent moving and um when I started making cheese 14 years ago in the US I I worked for different companies in different states and um really fell in love with the craft of cheesemaking but noticed that there was a lot of difficulties for especially small-scale farmstead cheesemakers in America and that they maybe couldn't experiment or do the things they wanted to with their milk because of the legal climate here. Mm -hmm. um, and I became very interested in the ideas that I was introduced to through David Asher's book, The Art of Natural Cheesemaking, and I realized that if I wanted to learn more about um, those styles and kind of like the roots of that approach being traditional cheesemaking, um, that I had to leave the U.S. And so I took a job in Mongolia. So, we're, so right there alone, how do you take a job in Mongolia? Where do you discover this job? How do you? How does one do that? Because you might, you know, I'm sure people listening are going to be inspired 
So yeah. maybe they're going to want to get find a job in Mongolia or, or another remote place. Right. So I mean, I I pay attention to to job postings um, through the like ACS website and Good Food Jobs, and I had just heard about this um, American guy who started this company in Mongolia um, with the aim of buying milk from the herders there and and helping to support them by buying this milk, processing it into cheese, and then um, gearing that to export. So I just, I started talking to this guy and and ended up going out there to work for him and kind of manage this small cheese plant outside of Ulaanbaatar. Um, but we were like pasteurizing all this cow's milk and using commercial starter cultures. And we started developing cheeses like cheddar and camembert. And I kind of realized that when a lot of projects like this get started in other countries, they, they turn to these cheeses, these uh, European style approach. And the, 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 this, the cheese, the cheeses of Europe are looked to by the whole world as being kind of like the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. But I was in Mongolia, a country with thousands of years of rich dairying traditions and a huge range of dairy foods. So I kind of, became fed up with that concept of what we were trying to do. And I left the company and started traveling in Mongolia and staying with herder families and documenting what they were doing. I mean, like for my own, from my own interest, I was uh, taking a lot of photographs and writing down as much information as I could. And I was a, one family that I visited, I, I was there with this woman who was Mongolian and she spoke English and Chinese. And so she served kind of as my translator. And I got to spend a couple of weeks with this family and we I learned all about how they raise yaks and and make cheese over a fire in their yurt. And all of these things that I had thought were just how dairying is done. I was kind of unlearning through doing this and, and I was exposed to like a culture of people that were nomadic cheesemakers. Um, and it felt right to me. It was like the documentation of this stuff and sharing it and talking about it just kind of struck a chord with people. And so I just continued to, to follow that. Um, but for me to kind of grow into this role, um, it took it took a lot of like researching the places and then contacting people. And so I email just a ton of people. I just reach out and knock on a lot of doors. And what mm-hmm. I've found is that in a lot of these countries that don't get a lot of attention from the like international cheese community, Um, where there's organizations set up to promote, protect, or revitalize um, the cheeses and the dairying culture behind them. When when I can contact these people and tell them I'm I'm interested in coming, they're often very helpful and will help me make the contacts that I need. So now that I've been doing this for a while and I have like some legitimacy, it's becoming much easier to meet the contacts. 
Um, initially I was just kind of going places where I knew there was cool stuff happening with cheese and dairy and just like walking around with my backpack and kind of running into people, um, Hmm. which can be the only approach in some of these very rural mountainous places, uh, where there are just like herders up there that you would never really be able to contact online. Sometimes you have to just go and and make the connections on the ground Um, so you're like literally networking just in the fields in the in the in the hillsides in the villages um you know find find out what 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 might be your next move yeah you're gonna go who you're gonna collaborate with and then before you know it you could wind up in sicily is it just that simple yeah yeah i think so i mean it's it it takes kind of the willingness to put yourself in uncomfortable situations um i Mm -hmm. don't speak any other languages so that Mm -hmm seems like a huge barrier. Um, but I've found that I've basically relied on the incredible hospitality of pastoral people and their, their willingness to help me and to invite me into their homes and share what they're doing with me, um, out of, I guess, the goodness of their heart. And also like they can see that I'm passionate about this stuff and that I, um, am driven by good motives. Like I'm, I'm not there to like expropriate these methods or make money Mm -hmm. off of this stuff. I I really want to learn and to share. And they seem pretty happy that I want to share this stuff because it's quite often um, a lifestyle that's disappearing. And there's a sense of that in almost Mm -hmm. every community of pastoralists that I visit. They, the, the common refrain is we're the last generation that will be doing this. Um, and they, oh, they gosh. lament that in some ways. So there's, there's some, um, I think there is, they get some sort of, uh, satisfaction out of sharing this stuff with me. And they're yeah. happy that I'm there to, to see this stuff that I've come from the U S and I'm, I'm willing and, and want to learn and share the stories with the world. And is it, was it in the beginning of your journeys where you, I mean, you have a couple quotes here that really resonate with me. I'm like, that just sounds so perfect. Like you said, cheese is an end product of a complex series of relationships and it involves ways that human cultures fit their landscape and economy. It, it was where, was it these rural areas, especially starting in Mongolia? It was, was it, did you expound on that? Is that where you were realizing this to be true? Yeah, definitely. Um, And so what I'm doing, I feel like, is kind of combining ethnography um, with cheese science and dairy science. Um, So I'm I'm looking not only at the the foods, but looking at how they fit in with the culture and and the kind of food ways and economies of the of the people who are practicing them, and they're it's something that I think is, is oftentimes lacking in, in the approach to cheese that we have in North America, um, where we're kind of mimicking styles that we think are delicious or will sell well. Um, Mm. but they're not necessarily cheeses that evolved in a place, um, Mm -hmm. to fit that place, unless you're looking at like regions that have an analogous climate, um, to where you are, which I think more people are starting to think about. But these like highly traditional cheeses oftentimes really fit in with the 
with the cultural adaptation to the land and climate. So yeah. in the case of Mongolia, you're looking at cheeses that aren't aged in a cellar. They don't have like moldy cheeses with rinds or aged hard cheeses. Mm-hmm. They have they have really hard cheeses, but they're actually dried in the wind and sun. So they're mm-hmm. actually like more like dehydrated um, dairy foods than what we think of as cheese. Um, and they also don't use rennet in Mongolia, which really limits them to other approaches to milk fermentation and coagulation. Almost everything there is either like an acid and heat coagulated cheese, such as paneer or ricotta, or it's somehow derived from yogurt. But just within those two approaches, they have a huge range of, of foods. And they're, they're like master technicians of milk in this country. And they can kind of turn one day's milking into three or four products and steer it in all these different directions. But the main focus of preservation is through dehydration. And you get these really light like cheeses that can be stored in a sack and carried with you when you travel on. So they fit the lifestyle of the people mm-hmm. and they fit the climate of the region. It's, it's like they're, they're working with the approach that seems to make the most sense. And, and this would be an example, just like many you probably have, that you have another quote, cheese is the distillation of a landscape. And it sounds what you're just, like what you're describing is exactly that. Uh, these folks are doing it the way it's always been done. They're not thinking about what store group or or uh, what's not necessarily. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they want something that tastes good, but that's they're they're, they're motivated by their own traditions and their own uh, logistics and and uh, what they're able to get their hands on and work with. It sounds like um, we're going to need to take a break in a second, uh, and then when we come back, I want to hear. Uh, we want to. I want to dig into uh, the Daphne Zeppos Teaching Endowment uh, Award that you received. So um, just hang out a second, and uh, we're going to take a break for our sponsor, and we'll be right back, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're here chatting with Trevor Warmerdahl and cutting the curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Trevor, you were the 2022 Daphne Zeppos Teaching Endowment Award winner, and your focus and vision had to do a lot with coagulates and rennet. And can you please tell us first what winning that award meant for you? And I think if most of us kind of know what rennet is, but what 
what what how does that contrast with coagulants even just to have explain that familiar with uh what the difference is Yes. So the Daphne Zeppos Teaching Award is one of two that are offered yearly by the Daphne Zeppos Teaching Endowment. And these are designed to help fund people in the cheese community. It could be at any level, cheese professionals to further their career and encourage them to move into education. So the Daphne Zeppos teaching award that I received um, kind of allowed me to to move my journey with cheese into um, more like legitimate research. It's like I now have the backing of the endowment and have this scholarship um, that allowed me to travel in a kind of a more organized way. So I invited a friend. Um, Alexander Pomper, who's a photographer, to come along with me. And I have been, had written my vision um, uh, on the subject of Rennet. And I had applied for the award uh, for three years before I received it. So I encourage anyone who's who's looking at at applying for this award to keep trying um, and and get, yeah, get your, get your vision in every year. And, um, it's the the idea for me was that I think rennet is one of the most overlooked ingredients in cheese, and it gets to the heart of what is involved in dairying, um, which for me is inherently tied to to the to the death of animals and to the eating of animals, um, and I I don't think we can really separate those two things. So rennet is a broad term that um, includes many different things that are used to coagulate milk. Um, I think of animal rennet as being the true rennet and the other types as being substitutes. So animal rennet is a, either a liquid or a paste that contains enzymes that are extracted from a abomasum of a very young milk-drinking ruminant animal. The abomasum is the fourth compartment of the ruminant digestive system. And when the animal is just drinking its mother's milk, so in the first month of its life, um, this organ is the largest and the milk that is drinking is bypassing the other compartments that are barely developed and going directly into the abomasum. And it's in this organ that the enzymes that coagulate milk are um, secreted. So in my opinion, milk is designed to be coagulated in the stomachs of, of animals, of all mammals. Um, and that it's that coagulation of the liquid milk into a solid form that allows the nutrients to be extracted out of it. So this, to me, is the origin of cheesemaking. Um Cheesemaking is not a human invention. It's a biological process that humans have formed a like deep technology of biomimicry around. But this is what milk is designed to do. It's designed to be coagulated into cheese inside of ruminant stomachs. So for 
for cheesemakers um, until quite recently, the rennet would be made locally, as far as I can tell, either like on the farm by the cheesemaker or in some sort of a um, very small regional production. And so when animals are born, like usually there's a, a time of the year when you'll have um, your lambs or your goat kids or calves in the springtime generally. And then there would be a like pretty regular slaughter of these young animals at, um, I've heard as young as 10 days. And generally the cap is somewhere around a month um, where the stomach is still producing mainly these enzymes, mainly uh, chymosin, which is the, the one that you really want to, to coagulate milk. And so these animals would be harvested not just for this organ, but in order to free up the milk so that the, the farmers, the people who are milking the animals, the cheesemakers have access to it. So it's kind of like this animal sacrifice that's at the heart of what we consider dairying and, and how dairying is done in most of the world. Um, and this is where um, dishes like suckling lamb, suckling goat kid, um, come from is this tradition. And we still see a vestige of this in, in Easter lamb, um, in our culture. Um, so in my opinion, these are all actually tied to this historical practice of, uh, uh, sacrificing these animals and then using the stomachs to produce rennet. Um, it is. And the more I learn about this, the more fascinated I, I am. And so that's like, that's like the, the root of rennet. And then there are also some plants that will coagulate milk. And they, these are plants that produce enzymes that just happen to do that. It's almost accidental. Whereas the enzymes in the abomasum kind of evolved to do, to do this. So they do the best job. The plants that will coagulate milk, um, they're often used to make fresh cheeses. Because if you try to ripen cheeses that are coagulated from plants, it can go in very strange and unpredictable directions. You can end up with um, excessive proteolysis or softening of the cheese until it's almost runny. And sometimes bitterness or just flavors that are less desirable. The one plant that is most common in the world is um, types of thistle. And so I got to see some cheeses made with this in... Catalonia and the Canary Islands. So these are most often used with sheep's milk, and you have these whole these whole families of cheeses that are coagulated with thistle. So that's something else that I've explored, and kind of the alternative to animal rennet that I'm the most interested in discussing. Um, and then there's a whole category of synthetic products. Um, these are sometimes called vegetarian rennet, but I kind of don't like that name. Um, it kind of implies that there's such a thing as vegetarian milk, which I don't think is accurate. So these would be things like um, first microbial rennet came online as a product that was made from, uh, from a mold. And it oftentimes led to some bitter flavors. So then the next product that came online is called fermentation produced chymosin. Um, and this is what 90% of the cheesemakers in North America are using and increasingly the world. 
It's also called 100% Kaimazin. And what's oftentimes left out of the discussion is that this is produced by a genetically modified organism, uh, but doesn't have to be labeled as such because what is sold is actually the product of that GMO and not doesn't contain the GMO itself. So it is tricky. And, and this is kind of what people around the world have, have taken up because it's, it's offered to them in a convenient package and it's, it does the job. But I think that when you simplify it down to just this single enzyme, chymosin, you end up um, with like a single note as in terms of the impact on the cheese itself. And so it seems to me that most cheesemakers think of rennet as just being something that's doing the coagulation. Whereas if you're using like especially these whole stomach rennets that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about these. I, I saw these pictures. So this might be on the opposite end of the spectrum where you have the 100% chymosin in the bottle and then you have these next level lamb abomasum uh, drying out in a cellar with the milk that's still in the stomach. And then that's at some point that's turned into a paste or something or that's. Yeah. Yeah. So like I saw this a lot in the Basque country where the Basque cheesemakers of the Idiathabal have kind of an exemption to keep um, using the stomachs from their own lambs. So they take their lambs to the slaughterhouse, which is all EU sanctioned and they get the abomasums back full of milk. And if you use these to make cheese, um, you can you actually use not only the skin of the abomasum, but the interior, like the coagulated milk, and you can get very special flavors. Um, mm. These are oftentimes associated with like pecorinos from Sicily and Sardinia mm -hmm. um, that have this distinctive lipase bite to them. It's like a mm -hmm. spiciness and a like a white peppery kind of note. Kind of yeah, definitely. There's a there's a small hint Flinty. of this in Parmigiano Reggiano, um, and it's that kind of like some people compare it to baby vomit, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's an an apt comparison because these flavors have this kind of stomach acid like character, but that that makes it sound gross, but it's not. These are flavors that are like yeah. incredibly umami and have this like um have this other layer and um animal flavor to them that can be very very pleasant especially as the cheese ripens um and so so these cheesemakers in the Basque country would would hang these abomasums full of milk until they dried and then use them to make a rennet paste and add that sometimes by itself or sometimes mixing it with liquid rennet. Um, and the liquid rennet is almost always made from just the skin. And when yeah, people... Yeah, that's only I've ever seen that either the skin that looks like jerky or dried, you know, salami mm -hmm. or a cut from a longer, you know, uh, pressed version of all the, all the linings of the stomach. It looks like a salami hanger where they'll snip a little off or the bottle of the rennet. Uh, but I have seen the stomach uh, that you're talking about. One of my first trips ever to Europe uh, in the 2000s where I did visit an Ilya Thabel producer and they held up the 
the stomach. And then I was spoiled. I thought like that was going to be, that's how most of the Reddit looks. And then I realized in later visits, it's, I haven't seen it since until I saw some of the pictures you posted. Yeah. And it's the use of the whole stomach is becoming rare, even in the case of Idiathabal, um, because these flavors that emerge, um, they're kind of bolder, uh, more spicy flavors that we categorize as having like a lipase-like flavor. They're becoming less popular. And this cheese is now exported and becoming, you know, kind of commodified. And in order to appeal to um, modern palates, they're kind of losing that that dimension of that spiciness and that bold flavor. It's right, right. It's oftentimes associated with older people that like that flavor. And a lot of people would say that like the cheese is changing and that it's, it's, it's lost that character. And that's true, not only in the case of the Basque country, but in other countries where older people were kind of used to their cheese, having more character, more, more of this lipase flavor, mm that's being lost. Um, and, and this is the type of thing that is lost. Wow. I think when you're switching to these products, like 100% Kymazin. Um, so that's kind of like the historical root of, of Rennet. And what I'm interested in now is looking at all these traditional methods and being able to kind of combine them in a modern context and reinterpret that knowledge. And I think, Making cheese in America is one of the most exciting places in the world to be a cheesemaker because we aren't bound by tradition. And there's a playfulness and freedom to experiment and incorporate things from around the world that yeah. is gives the huge potential. Um, and I'm interested in blending coagulants. So mm-hmm. in the case of these Basque cheesemakers, the cheeses of theirs that I liked the best were ones where they would combine some of this um, lipase-rich paste with just straight liquid rennet. So you can kind of temper that big, bold flavor and, and throttle it. Um, and I think that's a really interesting approach to be able to combine not only those two ingredients, but maybe combining animal rennet with thistle or doing just different things to get like, to think of rennet as being a component in flavor development and texture development of your cheese and not simply a coagulant. Yeah, we do simply do in conversations, um, at least as far as like uh, your regular cheese fan, you might skip it like that's an ingredient, like oh rennet. And then uh, then then maybe you can learn what bacterial cultures are inside the cheese, which would affect the flavor the most. But the way you're illuminating this point is that the the rennet itself could be a palette to play with where you're you're influencing flavors, and our, so our, do you see a common denominator where the old world methods where these lamb abasimum I'm not gonna say this the right way abomasum the lamb abomasums the, the, the lamb fourth stomach uh, chamber there um, is being uh, used in more older more traditional uh, cheese vats like I noticed that. You were uh, you're in front of the, in some of your videos. You're in front of these uh, uh, wooden vats, 
And when I say wouldn't, I'm, I'm used to seeing copper vats. I get to go to uh, Switzerland uh, sometimes, uh, once a year maybe if I'm lucky. And uh, many of the traditional cheeses are copper lined for you know for good reasons. It conducts heat 20 times more efficiently. And there's arguments about how it's uh, it controls microbes in a favorable way and nutrients. But you are not. We're not talking about a stainless steel wood lined vat. We're talking about wooden wooden cheese making vessels with wooden tools. And it just, this seems to be where the proximity to these older methods are. So I would, I'd like to hear just a point about that too. And, and then do you imagine blending these, this older, old, more old fashioned traditional way of the, the lamb uh, rennet, for instance, putting it in a newer facility? Is that, is that the reality of what might happen maybe years down the road here in the USA? Yeah, I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to kind of talk about these methods and teach about them with the intention of hopefully eventually affecting how cheese is made on a commercial level and showing the validity of these methods and pointing to some of the science that's being done, um, especially in Europe, that's showing that the use of, in this case, wooden vats is not only safe, but can potentially be safer than the stainless steel heavily heavy sanitation um, sanitizer approach. Mm -hmm. So the wooden vat is very emblematic of this other paradigm because you can't sanitize wood. And this is why if you have wooden equipment in your creamery in America, your inspector would freak out and they would say, yeah, you can't have that in there that that can harbor microbes. Um, And if you said this to like the cheesemakers in Sicily that use wooden vats to make this cheese ragusano, they would say, exactly, the wood is harboring the microbes that I am using to ferment my cheese. So mm-hmm. that cheese is amazing. Like ragusano is one of my favorite cheeses and it has these really particular flavors of that I associate with naturally fermented cheeses. Um, and this is an instance of what we would kind of consider a no starter culture added cheese. Um, and most of the naturally fermented cheeses that I see as I travel are in that category. They're not adding, um, either commercial starter cultures or kind of the methods that I'm working with, which is kefir and clabber based starter cultures. Um, so Ragusano, um, is associated with the Modicana cow and the milk goes directly from milking while it's still warm into a wooden vat. And then the day's cheese is made. This wooden vat is cleaned only with very hot whey, which is kind of encouraging thermophilic bacteria to thrive and probably Mm -hmm. knocking back most other things. So they're cultivating the microbes they need to ferment their cheese in the wood. Um, And then the cheese ferments slowly over one or two days and is stretched in a separate wooden stretching container. And then it presses in this incredible wooden box. It it almost looks like a coffin with a wooden lid on it. Mm -hmm. And if you if you get up and look at this box, it's not, um, it's like covered in biofilms. There's like definitely things growing in there 
specifically yeast, and you can smell this yeastiness. Mm-hmm. So this cheese, after being stretched, is being pressed in this box that is the opposite of the stainless steel sanitizer approach. And yet this cheese is being made safely, and the result is these delicious flavors that I don't think could really be replicated in the stainless steel vat. So what I'm looking at here is that the the materials make a big difference in the cheese. And this is why sometimes the, the material type would be included in like the AOP regulations for a cheese. Um, the copper vats used in the Alpine cheeses are a great example mm-hmm. of this. And then wooden vats used in some other cheeses. Isn't Ragusano a proprietary cheese as well? Is it DPO? Yeah, it is. And the name is actually, yeah, the name is actually pretty new, but it's based off of a a cheese that's being been made for a really long time. Um, And so the, the use of wood in this case is that it is an integral part of the cheese. Um, And I mean, some of the issues of working with wood are that obviously you can't heat it. Yeah, Um, can't have a cooked curd cheese. Right, right. I mean, there are methods where, like what they do with Ragusano is they add really hot water to it. So technically, you could say it's also like a partially washed curd cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of the other cheeses that are associated with wood involve no cooking at all. They're cheeses that are going to have the moisture pressed out later, um, Mm -hmm. in like the case of Salers. Um, and I'm experimenting with using a wooden vat now. I, I have one and I'm making lactic cheeses in it, which obviously you don't need to do any cooking in. And since I switched to the using the wooden vat, the, the cheese has really improved. And I can only attribute that to, to the wood itself. And um, I'm, I'm adding a starter culture when I make a batch. Once you've fermented one batch of lactic cheese, if you immediately make another batch, you don't have to actually add any because the wood is kind yeah. of serving as a reservoir for whey from the batch before. Um, and the the wooden vat is already taking on this like yeasty aroma. So we're also probably introducing <clears throat> yeasts into this lactic cheese. And after I salt it and make shapes, it immediately starts having the same yeasty aromas as the vat does so there's like this continuity um of the microbes and the wood it sounds like it could just keep getting better and better maybe too or more consistent yeah we'll we'll see what what happens with it but i'm going to continue to clean it just with whey and soak it in sour whey Um, and i'm imagining that eventually there's going to be kind of a lot of mold and stuff growing on the outside but that's okay. And um, I think we've, we're all familiar with the work of the cheese nun and kind of like the, the, the photographs that people might have seen of these wooden vats. They, they look filthy, but that's, that's seeing them through the eyes of this modern sanitation paradigm. So the use of wood and the, the use of substances or of materials that can't be sanitized is... I think a perfect kind of introduction to a, another approach to food safety, which is that of cultivating microbes 
Right, right. Really embracing that. Now, how how can this trend or, or what, what trend would you like to see, given what you've done and what you know, what would you like to see in the USA, cheesemaking-wise, or in the world for that matter, but especially in the USA, what trends in cheesemaking would you wish to see, knowing the, the barriers with that there might be with the FDA and what's what's allowed with wooden tools? What what could maybe happen here, trend-wise? I'm what hoping could to be opened? I'm hoping to see a access to a wider range of coagulants. Um, I think this is something that's really limited in America. The choice of products that we can, the, the choices of, of Reddit that we can use. There's a much wider range in Europe um, that gives cheesemakers there an advantage. And I, I would like to see uh, more of these products being available to be imported. And and I would love for cheesemakers in America to begin experimenting with a wider range of coagulants. Um, and I would also love if Reddit could be made domestically, if somebody could take that on as a project, and if cheesemakers could potentially be able to make their own Reddit and work with the local dairying economies to, to produce Reddit. Um, I'm also hopeful that naturally fermented cheeses can gain more traction here and that some of these ideas of like fermenting milk and making clabber could be adopted by commercial cheesemakers. And there's there's kind of like a more involved and precise way of doing this involving incubators and freezing starter cultures, um, which like the... The one company who's doing this that is kind of at the forefront is Parish Hill Creamery. Um, so Peter and Rachel are are like doing the work and um, they're kind of like the leading voice of this in in America. And I think mm-hmm. that the, the approach that they're um, that they're following is the one that would make sense for commercial cheesemakers and that could potentially fit in with the regular regulatory environment um, here. Mm-hmm. You see it a lot in the in in their work. When you look at their range, and there's a table full of parachill cheeses in front of you, you you have to be reminded. Oh no, this is just one dairy's cheese. This isn't a collection of ten dairies, right? They're they're also different. Yeah, and their cheeses are amazing. I think the the flavor there speaks for itself. Um, and like you said, you can kind of start to taste this um, when cheeses are made with like really heavy, heavy doses of commercial starter cultures. There kinds, there tends to be these kind of generic flavors. Um, so I would like to see more cheesemakers doing stuff like that, and and ideally a loosening of the of the restrictions on on things like wood in um, cheesemaking facilities. Um, and so I'm yeah. kind of looking at what I'm doing as being like a, you know, like pioneering and um, starting the conversation and um, and hopefully yeah. hopefully encouraging cheesemakers to think outside of the box. And and I think the 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 proof of the validity of the methods also needs to be backed by documented replicable science. And so I'm hoping that more uh, microbiologists are going to look at this stuff. And it seems to be kind of a, um, a, a phenomenon that's happening in microbiology 
uh, people looking at communities of microbes rather than microbes in isolation. And so I hope to see more mm. of that type of research done um, to, to highlight that this stuff is actually quite safe. Kind of like the, um, a thoughtful garden will you'll, you'll plant plants that work off each other and are better for each other. You're not just simply putting the plants that you like in the garden. It, it could be the approach to maybe understanding, well, I'm going to inoculate my cheese with these certain microbes or certain rennets because they work well together, not only because I like maybe the outcome. Is that almost the way to think about that in a way? Yeah, definitely. And, and also working with what's already there. Um, meaning what's in the milk to begin with. And, and instead of trying to like force things by, by pasteurizing and inoculating with commercial starter cultures, maybe trying to look back at how can we maintain the health of the milk to begin with? And how can we cultivate the microbes that we want and steer these fermentations um, rather than trying to dictate everything that is happening in them. Um, And there are like, there are always risks involved with this stuff. And I don't want to come off as if I'm saying we shouldn't be clean and we shouldn't be careful. Um, But I'm trying to encourage another path towards food safety. And I understand why things like pasteurization have become normal and they are a good idea when you can't guarantee the health of the herds and when you're moving milk over long distances and combining milk from many different herds. So the idea of pasteurization and commercial starter cultures makes sense at a certain scale Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the issue, I think, is that that mentality is applied down onto all scales of production when there mm. should be different standards and it should really come down to the microbiology of the milk and the um, end product testing. And if if this stuff can be shown to be safe, then it should be allowed. Um But unfortunately, too often the regulations aren't actually following the modern science that is happening. Um, And so I'm just trying to introduce like a little more nuance into the conversation and and show that cheese has been safely made and milk has been safely and effectively fermented for a long period of time, um, according to other approaches that that fit the place in which they evolved and fit the cheese styles that are being made um, and that there should be different levels of of regulation and different standards for different types of cheese because they don't all have the same risks associated with them right if only i hope we can get to that point and uh well just 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 you've been really raising the bar and pushing the envelope here on so many of these topics, at least to my limited knowledge on, on the topics themselves. It really, I really just, just fascinating. Will you be also presenting at the ACS at the, for those that can make it out to the American cheese society conference in Des Moines, will you, you'll be there presenting uh, for, for the Daphne Zippos teaching award. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be, I'll be presenting kind of the findings and further questions from my research 
and kind of talking about specifically how different coagulants can impact cheese and and looking at the specifics of like how to work with abomasums and how this stuff is made and kind of sharing the stories of the cheesemakers that I've visited that are still doing it, that are still making their own coagulants and, um, and talking about what are the range of products that are out there and, mm. and, and potentially ways that cheesemakers can start experimenting with and, and thinking about incorporating these into their cheeses to introduce more signature flavor and texture. Sounds like a presentation not to miss. And uh, I feel like we've almost covered, uh, even though there's so much we didn't have time for, because we have to, we have to go in a, in a, uh, shortly here. But uh, I'm going to guess that you have some, a book working. It almost seems like you have a, a book uh, happening here, right before, right, right to our, our very, right before our very eyes, um, like what we're hearing here. Is there a book in the works for you? Yeah, that's certainly something that I'm aiming for. And I've, I'm continually writing and thinking about what direction I want to go with that. So the first step for me has been to start to get things published. Um, and so I'll have a article coming out in Culture Magazine about the Rennet research they did for the DZTA. And, um, and I'm writing on a platform called Substack to kind of like um, develop my skills as a writer. So I do right. want to write a book. I think it's, it's just a matter of time before that happens. Um, and yeah, stay tuned and, uh, yeah. we'll get it together yeah. at some point. It's, here. I'm sure. I'm sure it sounds like it's already together. Uh, so it's just a matter of you choosing, uh, you know, when to uh, actually just put it all in one tome, if we, if, if I may say, but, you know, we, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm, I'm, we're going to have to uh, hit the pause button. But please come back again and give us some updates. We want to hear more of what's going on, uh, maybe for a, a part two or for future visits here on Cutting the Curd. Yeah, that sounds great. I would love to um, share more stories. And I'm excited to get back out and start traveling again. Um, this August, I'll be heading to Norway and then back to bra italy for slow cheese in september well many listeners will look to see you and myself included in bra uh so i will look forward to, to seeing you in real life there hopefully over a piece of tasty uh natural raw milk uh rendered cheese and I, i'll look forward to uh, um, that very much um so thanks again trevor uh and please come back Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. All right. All right, everyone. You can follow Trevor on Instagram, and that's at milk underscore trekker, spelled with two Ks. Plus, you can follow us on Instagram at Cutting the Curd and follow me at Sting Chef. Please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, please give us a five-star rating if you like us a lot. It would mean so much and also really help us broaden our audience. And please consider joining Trevor's Sour Milk School or supporting Trevor's Substack writing page and writing work. The link is in his Instagram bio. Thanks again, everyone. And if you love someone, send them cheese. Cutting 
heard is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.